0: Were Jews ahead of their time in their treatment of women? And how holy is too holy? This is Rabbi Yossi Madvig, and you're listening to Jews Did It First. (laughs) With the Me Too movement this past year, women's rights have been brought to the fore. I think it's really important to note that despite a lot of the evidence of misconduct, the U.S. is still the safest, freest, most prosperous place in the world for women. Thank God. It's the safest if you look at what's going on in many other countries, uh, particularly Islamic countries where women are assaulted or even killed for certain behaviors, Uh, communist countries where there's coercion, to have abortions, thank God we do not live in a society like that. It is the freest, where women are able to do pretty much anything in the U.S., from being a CEO to running for president, women are gaining traction in the highest echelons of American society. And it's the most prosperous. Women have higher incomes than ever before in history. And according to a, Times mag- a Time magazine study in uh, 2010, I believe it was, uh, women in major cities with the same education and experience and work hours, etc., uh, as their male counterparts, actually make a little bit more, anywhere from 8 to 20% more money, which is unbelievable. So, thank God, things are really, really wonderful in this country. However... These legal rights are relatively recent. It's been less than 100 years since women could even vote, let alone hold certain jobs. But when it comes to respect for a woman's body and equality under the law, Jews did it first. Don't misunderstand me. There are definitely very defined roles for women and men in Jewish society. I'm not saying that they are encouraged or in some cases even allowed to perform the same social or religious function. Some of that is for biological reasons and some of that is for spiritual reasons. In fact, I heard a very interesting, uh, what do you call it in Yiddish, acute a word, uh, you know, a, a sort of a teaching, we'll say, where, you know, a friend was asking that, you know, it's clear that men and women have biological differences, right? We're physically different. You would agree. Men and women are physically different. We are emotionally different, right? We experience things differently emotionally. We react emotionally in different ways to to different things. And... We're psychologically different. Men and women think differently and perceive things differently. And so, therefore, it would actually make a lot of sense for men and women to also be spiritually different. So, there's a lot of spiritual connotation. Perhaps connotation is not the right word. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, but there is a lot that goes into what We perceive as differences, uh, maybe sexist differences, but really what we believe is that there is a a very defined spiritual role for men and women based on their spiritual makeup, as it were. I don't want to get into that right now. That's perhaps for a different time, or I'm not sure what. But uh, what I want to get into is the treatment of women and how uh, Jewish society really was at the forefront of respect for women. In ancient civilizations, women could be legally forced to marry, they could be legally forced to, into prostitution or slavery. They were for all intents and purposes treated like property. Not in all civil I, I guess, you know, there were there were varying degrees. It's not like women were just, you know, spat on and kicked in the street or anything. You know, there's certainly varying degrees of where this could go. But, you know, as as a whole in the ancient world, Women were not treated particularly kindly, uh, and this kind of behavior even continues in modern history and in some places even today you know as we mentioned especially in uh, you know the Middle East and Africa, well, if you go back to literally the first Jews, Abraham and Sarah, when Abraham is unsure what to do about his wicked son Ishmael, Sarah tells him to send him away. Now, perhaps in a very misogynistic, or misogynist, I'm not sure how to say that, in a misogynist society, uh, Abraham should just say, shut up, woman, I'll call the shots around here. But, God actually tells him, listen to her voice. Now, you might say, okay, that's a one-off, Sarah happened to get it right this time, but the Talmud actually teaches from this event that Sarah herself, had greater prophecy than Abraham. Something strange to say. The act, the first Jews, and not only that, but we also learn that women in general—not just Sarah—women in general have a greater level of bina, which is translated as understanding, than men. Now, this is very odd. We can't even get through a few generations of Jews before we find some kind of exceptional female prophet or prophetess. The very first generation were already extolling the virtues of women. Furthermore, in the case of pretty much every major moment in in history, women are calling shots that alter the course of history. And when you look at every male figure in the Torah, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Joseph, Moses, Aaron. the the uh, the Torah goes out of its way to introduce the wife. Even more minor figures like Judah say, uh, and even other parts of the Bible, not just the five books of Moses, but uh, you know King David and so on. And it's really interesting because from a Male oriented perspective, who really cares, right? We care about what the men do, and they're doing most of the action. Uh, And in fact, you know, with a few exceptions, uh, we don't really learn a whole lot about what the women added or accomplished in the history of their lives. But not only does the Torah go out of its way to introduce them into the narrative, It does so in a way that's not passive. It's not just, oh yeah, by the way, they married so-and-so. No, no, no. It does it in a way that actually extols their virtues. Especially with regards to the three forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their wives, Sarah, uh, Rebecca, and Rachel. In fact, like I said, you could argue that most of the major decisions in history, uh, at least in biblical history, are actually attributed to women. So, let's go all the way back to the first woman, Chava, or Eve. Now, what does she do that changes and alters the course of history? She eats from the fruit, right? Now, typically this is seen as a negative event, but Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism explain that it was because she saw, prophetically, the tremendous merit of having to work hard and overcome sin and bring godliness into the world through our actions and our toil, over having paradise handed to us on a silver platter in the Garden of Eden. So she ate the fruit that began that process, which will ultimately end in the salvation of the world, and godliness revealed even in the lowest realms. It kind of reminds me, La about, you know, in The Matrix, if you ever saw The Matrix... There's a line in there where basically they say that the machines tried to create a world that was perfect. There was no struggle, there was no strife, and the human um, minds rejected such a world, right? They needed that, they they just needed that that fight. They needed that resistance. And so they made it like a, a regular, like real life. So the same thing. Chava saw how tremendous the not not just the reward but the the action would be to bring about godliness into the world through our actual service and not through it just being handed to us so uh there you go uh, uh, right in the beginning the very first woman Judaism takes an incredibly positive view of her actions, and she alters the course of history for the better. Then, there's the previously mentioned story of uh, Abraham and Sarah, right, with Ishmael. Then you get to Isaac's wife, Rebecca, uh, Because of her actions of loving-kindness, she's chosen to be the wife of Isaac. Right? And she actually decides, they ask her, let's see what she says, right? And she says, yes, I'll go. And interestingly enough, from there, we learn that the woman has to give consent to the marriage, right? We can't just, it's not like in, uh, it's, this is not like caveman days over here, you know, in the past if uh, you know they liked each other, whatever, the guy likes a girl, whatever, club her on the head, drag her to your cave, I don't know, I don't, I'm not sure exactly how things work, but, you know, like I said before, the woman could be forced to marry. Not so in Judaism. Woman needs to have consent. So, all you Title IX people, Jews did it first. Furthermore, uh, she, Rebecca, you know, uh, Isaac's wife, Recognizes their son Jacob's greatness and righteousness over Asav, Esau, and she ensures that Jacob is the one who receives the blessings from Isaac. She's also responsible for saving Jacob's life when she realizes that Esau wants to kill him. So here you have the woman in the story changing, or not changing, but making decisions that bring about a, a Completely different course of history that than would have happened had she not intervened, and for the better. Of, that's the point. Then you have Rachel, Jacob's wife, his his main wife anyway. Uh, you might know the story where he works for seven years and uh, Lavan, his would uh, soon to be father in law. Switches the girls, right? He's supposed to marry Rachel. He switches it for Leah because she's older. He doesn't want the old, the younger daughter married first. Well, the Medrash actually tells us a whole story over here. Like, how did how did Jacob let this happen? Like, he, he didn't know, right? It Says the next morning he realized it was Leah. Well, how did he not know, right? So it's Rachel herself who allows Leah, her sister, to marry Jacob by giving her certain signs that that uh, she and Jacob had worked out. Just in case the father tried to switch you know switch the program on them, uh, she actually tells Leah what the signs are to allow Jacob to think that it is Leah. And because of this, she ends up Leah ends up giving birth to half of the twelve tribes. That's pretty significant. It's also related uh, later on that it's because of Rachel's prayers, that the Jews are protected in exile, right, as they were marched past her grave by the Babylonians during the uh, the Babylonian exile. Moving on in history a little bit, you have Miriam, who is the uh, the sister of Moses and Aaron, and she is the one who convinces her parents to remarry because it tells us in the Medrash that uh, their her parents. Amram and Yocheved had divorced because of Pharaoh's decree to throw all the baby boys into the river, and she says, hey, what are you talking about? This is a little girl now. She's, I think, uh, five or six years old at the time. She says, your decree is worse. You're going to divorce because he was the leader of the generation. He divorces his wife. Everyone else starts divorcing their wives because they see that's what we're supposed to do now, so we don't bring any children into this terrible world where they're being thrown into the river, and she says, well, your decree is worse. At least with Pharaoh, he only wants to get rid of the boys. But you're basically annihilating the boys and the girls. If everyone's divorced, no one's making babies over here, then uh, there's no boys, there's no girls, the Jewish people are done for. And she says, you're going to see Moses, or not, she doesn't say Moses, Uh, you'll have the, the, the boy that will redeem the Jewish people, and it'll be great. And they get back together. And so she, because of her, Moses, the redeemer of the Jewish people, is born. And she's also responsible for reuniting Moses with his mother right after he's sent down the river. She kind of follows along, and then as the daughter of Pharaoh sees the baby, and uh, the baby won't uh, nurse, and so she says, hey, jumps out of the bushes, hey, why, why don't I get a Jewish nursemaid for you? And Pharaoh's daughter says, sure, sounds like a great idea. Again, moving along in history, another 80 years. Tzipporah, uh, the wife of Moses, she actually saves Moses' life. He's being be, being eaten by this snake angel thing on the way to Egypt to save the Jews, and Tzipporah is the one who jumps in and performs the needed circumcision and saves Moses' life. So, these are major players affecting the history of the world and their women. Speaking more generally... The Midrash tells us that it was because of the righteousness of the women, not the men, that the Jews were redeemed redeemed from Egypt in the first place. The essential form of prayer, how we pray on a daily basis, is learned from a woman named Chana. That story is found in Shmuel, I believe, in Samuel. You have the salvation of the Jews in Persia, as told in the book of Esther, That came about through primarily a woman, namely Esther herself, Queen Esther. You can read about that over there. It's a short read. It's only about ten chapters, and the last chapter is only a paragraph, so nine chapters. It's a good story. You should check it out. Likewise, uh, a major part of the victory over the Greeks on Hanukkah is again attributed to the women, the righteousness of the women, as well as a particular woman named Judith. There's There's a famous story where... This woman, uh, you know, they're, they're being, uh, I guess, laid siege. Uh, I'm not sure if this is if there's a difference of opinion whether this is over Hanukkah or whether it was another time, um, whether it was uh, during a Roman siege. There's a difference of opinion here, but it is often referred to as a Hanukkah story. So I'll tell it. story goes like this. The Jews were in lockdown, basically, under siege, and they were kind of at a loss of what to do. So, this woman, Judith Yehudas, she goes up to the whoever's guarding the gates. She says, look, I have an idea that can save us. Let me go, we'll try one, Try. let me try this idea. If it doesn't work, then okay, whatever. I, th- I think they were planning on either giving up or just trying to put up a fight, something like that. So, What does she do? She sneaks out at night so the enemy soldiers can't see her come out. She sneaks out, goes to the camp of the enemy soldiers, and she says she has information that could lead to the soldiers defeating the Jewish people. So, And she she wants to speak to the head general. So she goes into the tent of the head general. Tell him, leave me alone course the head general seeing this uh beautiful young woman come to him he has all these great ideas and she says hold on let's have a feast i'll tell you all about the plan okay so she brings with her lots of nice salty cheese which is delicious and she brings with her as well wine lots and lots of wine so what does he do he eats the nice salty cheese keeps eating the salty cheese Gets thirstier and thirstier, he's drinking all this wine. Eventually he gets so drunk, he passes out. So what does she do? She takes his sword, chops off his head, puts it in her bag, and leaves the camp. She tells the guards, the soldiers, don't bother him, he's sleeping, he wants to sleep it off. She goes back, they put this guy's head on top of the wall. The next morning... When the soldiers see the head of their general sitting on top of the wall of the city that they're laying siege to, they totally freak out. They realize he's now dead. You know, they go and see he's dead in the tent with no head. They freak out. They leave. They, their general's dead. This is not going to go well for them. Uh, they they abandon the, the campaign. Okay. Uh, and finally, just like uh, we see in Egypt, that it was the merit of the women that saved them, so too were taught that the future messianic redemption will be in the merit of righteous women. And lest you should think that sure, but you know all the prophets and the women, all, all the important people, most of the important people are men. Right? You had, if, if you look at just the prophet situation, we, we learn in the Talmud that yeah, of the main prophets, there's 48 men and only 7 women. That's true. However, we learn in the Medrash, I believe it's in Shir Shirim, that there are not just 600,000 male prophets, but there were 600,000 female prophets as well. So there was an equal number, men and women. Might not be explicitly stated. But why does it have to be? And why would the Medrash? This is also an ancient work from the ancient world where women were not exactly... uh, There's no reason for them to say, oh yeah, by the way, there was an equal amount of uh, women prophets as well, so don't worry. Who's worried about that? No one's worried. No one cares that there's women prophets. Judaism cares. God cares. Yes, it's important. So we see time and time again that... Women are extremely important to be cherished and coveted and perform the same jobs as men, uh, or or at least are respected as much as men, uh, even if they might do the job in a slightly different way. But certainly there is plenty of room in the realm of profit, in the realm of uh, military strategists over here, as we just saw with Judith, Uh, there is room for women to be on par with men here. Also, in Jewish law, women tend to be somewhat of a protected class, quite ahead of its time, I suppose. Uh, There's a lot of portions of the code of Jewish law, perhaps up to, I think, 25%, 20 or 25%, which is just devoted to the legal rights of women. Uh, Their marital status is extremely protected, with things like a prenuptial agreement, marriage contracts, a bill of divorce... I'll get into those more in depth in future episodes, but suffice to say for now that the main goal of these is to basically ensure that the man can't just get up and abandon his wife and children without any kind of serious financial and social consequence. Now, with all of this said, does it perfectly 100% protect women from bad apples? Of course not. There's bad people in the world. There are those who will flout the law, or they'll look for legal ways to shirk their responsibility. But an important question to ask is compared to what? If your comparison is utopia, of course you're gonna fall short. In fact the word utopia comes from the Greek oo and topos topos, right? O or o or oo which means not and topos means place, it is not a place. Utopia is not a thing. You can't compare where you are to utopia. You have to compare it to real life. If you compare it to every other system of its time, and even some systems in the present day, it's pretty amazing. Now with all of this, there's a tendency to tout the greatness of women in Judaism, at the expense of, and you know, maybe half-jesting, mocking of men. There are teachings in Judaism, as we've seen briefly here, that show women have more understanding and have a higher spiritual source and connection than men. But I think to overemphasize it is a mistake. After all, Judaism is you know a fairly male oriented system, I will say, uh, at least from a public standpoint you know the in the public sphere, in the synagogue, in most positions of power uh, it is very male oriented, and that's because uh you know there are very important aspects to male spirituality which are needed to complete the whole picture. I prefer to think of it as, there's a Hebrew expression, yesh b'zeh she'en b'zeh. Each one has something that the other is lacking. And together, men and women make a perfect physical and spiritual harmony that unites the universe and all of God's creation. Before I give my Dvar Torah, I just realized I totally forgot to mention uh, Deborah, of course, the most famous example, uh, who was one of the judges. Now, granted, yes, there was only one judge. Uh, this is in the period of judges before uh, before there was a king. You had a series of judges that were acting rulers of the Jewish people, uh, people like Samson, uh, for example. Uh, now, yes, there was only one woman that was a judge, granted that. It was the exception, not the rule. However... It doesn't seem like anyone thought it was like a weird thing. It wasn't like they were like, No! How could you have a woman judge? You know, and as soon as she became judge, there was this tremendous outcry from the masses of how could this possibly be? This isn't appropriate! What's going on here? No, it's just, yeah, there was a woman judge. What's the big deal? So, I think that's an important thing to note as well. Now, on with the Devar Torah. How holy is too holy? That was the question in the beginning. In the Torah portion this week, actually a double portion, after the death of Aaron's two sons is how the first one starts, and then you should be holy. Now, these two things are very related. The death of Aaron's sons and being holy are really one and the same. Because, if you remember, he had two sons, or he had four, but two of them, Nodav and Avihu, were very excited one day. They got, uh, I don't know, on a spiritual high, and they decided to go into the temple, to the Holy of Holies, and offer uh, an incense offering. They wanted to bring an offering to God. The problem was, of course, you're not allowed to go into the Holy of Holies unless you're the high priest, and unless it's Yom Kippur. If it's not Yom Kippur, and you're not the high priest, no go. So, what was their punishment? They were killed. God kills them, sends a fire into their nose, and that's that. Now, the reason that this is important is because in many religions, the spiritual high is the goal, Right? Uh, you look at a lot of uh, aesthetic religions, um, things that deal with, uh, you know, I think like Buddhism and Hinduism, uh, many times deal in this very aesthetic lifestyle of, you know, really disassociating with the physical and the ultimate goal being this spiritual nirvana. Well, in Judaism, that's not the case. Here you had two guys, they get on this real spiritual high, they just want to connect to God. And so what do they do? They go into the temple, the Holy of Holies, and they offer to God. Isn't that a good thing? They're getting in touch with their spiritual side. They're leaving behind the physical world and just wanting to be totally united with God in the holiest place, the Holy of Holies in the temple or the tabernacle. What's wrong with that? Everything. The whole point of creation is... What happened on Mount Sinai? God comes down to the mountain. Spirituality comes down to this world, unites with this world. It's not about going up and being lost in the spiritual realms, about finding spiritual nirvana and being completely and utterly united with God in a spiritual sense. No. God says, I want you to, to take that spiritual high and infuse the physical reality with it. All of the mitzvot, all the mitzvahs that God gives, the commandments, they are all they all deal in physical things. right? You take a piece of uh, parchment, a piece of hide, and you make it into parchment and you write a Torah scroll on it or a pair of tefillin or a mezuzah. You take wax and you make candles for Shabbat candles or holiday candles. You take... Uh, even your, your, your more spiritual mitzvahs of loving God, fearing God, it's your heart that loves God. It is your mind that understands God and knows God. Your physical brain, your physical heart. These are things, even prayer. You move, You have to move your lips. You have to do a physical action. Everything involves spirituality. You, er, sorry, everything spiritual involves physicality. You have to take that that yearning, and that desire, that spiritual uh, thrust that you have upwards and bring it down into this world, into the physical world and live as a soul in a body. If God just wanted us to be these spiritual beings, just make angels. He would leave it at that. But no, he made a soul to go into a physical body and that's where he wants to be revealed. To be godly, In a spiritual sense, it's not such a big trick. Of course, spirituality is spiritual. We get it. But to have physicality be spiritual, that's the real trick. And that's where Aaron's sons went wrong. So, they were too holy. But the real holiness, to be really super holy is to take that spiritual excitement and to infuse your everyday life. When you're walking down the street, when you're doing business, and you're doing business in an honest way, in a way that comports to the laws of the Torah, when you're walking down the street thinking of Torah thoughts, when you have a conversation with another person, and you discuss some holy thing, you discuss the Torah portion or something interesting that you learned about Judaism, about Torah, about God that's bringing it into the everyday life that's where it becomes super holy so I give us all a blessing that we should really live our lives in a way that is infused with godliness not to the point where we want to disassociate ourselves with the physical world, but where that we can be within the physical world, but, as we say in Yiddish, a we should be a little bit above the world, not disassociated from the world, but in a way where we're gliding slightly above because our physical life is imbued with a spirituality and a holiness that will eventually, God willing, bring about the complete and utter redemption of Mashiach, the righteous Redeemer, as we saw in this episode, through the righteousness of the women in particular, but through every single one of us being righteous in our lives. Lachaim Lachaim. Thanks so much for listening. Love to stay in touch. Please contact me on Twitter at Oswego Rabbi. You can engage on the Facebook page. Jews did it first. Or if you're listening on YouTube, uh, please write uh, in the comments below. I'd love to hear from you. Keep the conversation going. Until next week, Shabbat Shalom.